Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here. So just to get you caught up, we just finished Go Fish, and so we're going to be moving into uh, our First Corinthians series. But before we go there, uh, if you didn't or were coming in during the announcement video, we talked about uh, Discover Life. So if you've never um, come to Discover Life before and you've been coming to church for a while and you want to find out, because we always tell people it's good to find out who we are. You know, and if you want to be a part of what we're doing, it's good to uh, come and listen to, first of all, kind of the history of the church, you know, and when it was planted, what, what our value systems, what were we founded on, um, and what do we continue to hope for, and what do we believe in. Um, because we always tell people, like, if you're going to come, we want you to be a part of a movement, not just a part of coming to something uh, that you can attend. So coming to Discover Life will help you figure out, is Life Church a place for you? So if you've been coming for a while and you haven't taken the class, it's a great opportunity to do that. If you're new and you want to figure out, is Life Church a place that you would want to stick around or, or want to investigate more, it's also a great opportunity to come um, and learn more about the church. The other great thing that it is, it's really difficult on Sunday mornings to get to know other people uh, just because we have two services and it's hard, the in and out, so it's hard to get to know people. So it's an opportunity, too, to sit down and uh, get to know some people and an opportunity to sit down and ask me questions. If it's, you've ever had an opportunity and you'd be like, I'd really like to know what Life Church thinks or I'd really like to know what you think on certain things or just to get to know me more, it's an opportunity uh, to get that done. So that, again, is going to happen on Thursday night, so you can sign up. It's two uh, different nights, so you can sign up either on your uh, connection card or, you know, sign up on the app or just let Jennifer know and we'll get you signed up for that. All right, so 1 Corinthians. So just your quick reminder, so as you're turning, so I'm going to give you two places today that we're going to be working out of. One is 1 Corinthians 15, so that's the scripture we're going to be working through today, 1 Corinthians 15. We're also, and it's not going to be up on the screen, so I'm just going to give you a little bit of a warning ahead of time. So Isaiah 53, okay, so it's going to be an important part of putting this whole thing together, what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. And so we always encourage you, right, if you have a Bible, make sure that you have, you know, your Bible open so that you can go back to it. If you don't, have it on your phone. But it gives you opportunities because, remember, Sunday morning is about starting conversations, not giving all the answers, right? That's a really important part of what we're doing. We want you to find the answers, not through the preacher, but through your relationship with Jesus Christ. We think that's an important part of your journey, um, and we think that's what happens after uh, Sunday morning. So the whole idea of studying the book of 1 Corinthians was this, is we think First of all, it's important to go through books of the Bible um, and not just pull out certain pieces of Scripture and use them to support the agenda or the thing that you're talking about. We think it's good to look in context. So if they wrote an entire letter to a church, it's important to look at the entire letter and what was he trying to get done. So what was important to Paul when he wrote the letter to the Corinthian church and why would it be important to us and how should we understand it within context? So that was the whole idea behind studying a book of the Bible. So we know in 1 Corinthians that Paul was trying to get two things done. One was to clear up doctrinal issues. There were people in there that had got skewed on their idea of who Jesus Christ was. So he's like, we need to clear it up. And the other thing that he needed to clear up is he said, there's people who would call themselves Christians who are not living like Christians. So you are, and this was the important part. It wasn't to say you no longer are a Christian because of the way that you are living, because you didn't become one because of the way you live. Does that, I want to make sure we get there first of all, right? You didn't become a Christian based upon the way you live, Right? Yeah, that, thank you. <laughs> we we got to make sure we establish that one because the problem with the Corinthian church was they believed in Jesus Christ. They just couldn't figure out how to put it into practical life. Now, how, how much is that relevant to today? You know what I mean? You know and you believe and somebody's told you Jesus Christ died for your sins and you know you need to be forgiven. But how do you figure out how to live it out today? Like, how do you make sure that how Christ wants you to live, you can live it out? So Paul spent a significant amount of time in 1 Corinthians, 15, or 1 Corinthians telling people, like, this is the way you should live if you're going to call yourself a Christian. So now, we skipped over, so if you're following, and, and, and I tell you we skipped over it, so if anybody wants to study this personally, I can study this with them, but we skipped over 1 Corinthians 14, that's the only one that we've skipped over, because it's all about the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. So... 
instead of trying to navigate that from the stage, I think that would be a way easier conversation to have with you in person. So if you want to have that conversation of what Scripture is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 of how to navigate through the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, how does that fit inside of the church, does everybody have it? If you don't have it, are you not as holy as a person who does have it, right? All the questions that go with uh, speaking in tongues. So we went to 1 Corinthians uh, 15 where Paul gives an exhaustive Uh, commentary to the idea of a resurrection. How important is the resurrection? And how important is the resurrection to Christian people? So I'm hoping you're going to know this, but I'm going to restate it anyway. The resurrection for Christian people is the pivotal point, right? It's the pivotal point. If you don't believe in or live out the resurrection, then we are no different than other any other religion. Because every other religion had a prophet, right? had a prophet who came who told people how to live, right? So you look at any of them. So they came and the prophet said, this is the way that you should live. These are the things that you should do. If you want to move on to the afterlife, this is the way things that you're going to have to do to be able to move on to the afterlife. Everybody had that prophecy, right? Every prophet came and talked about those things. The difference in Christianity than any other religion today is is that the prophet or the rabbi that we believe in in Jesus Christ is no longer in a tomb but sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's the pivotal point, right? And so in this, the important part about that is not just that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's that when he said, I'm going to leave, I want you to live a resurrected life, right? Now think about this for a second. If you've thought about the afterlife, Right, which I think most people at some point have. What happens after I die? Have you guys thought about that ever? Like, what happens after I die? Most times, if you are processing that on a semi-regular basis, you will then choose to live based upon your thought of the afterlife. Right? Think about it. If you go back and you study the Greeks, right, and the gods, and, the, and how they worship the gods. The way that they worshiped the gods was we thought the afterlife was going to be this way. And to get to it, we had to do certain things. So we followed the rules that we needed to do to be able to experience the afterlife in which we believed in. If you look at, again, from, from a Muslim perspective or an Islam perspective, it is there's a scale, right? And here's how the scale works. If my good works outweigh my bad works, I'm going to go to heaven, If my bad works outweigh my good works, then I am going to go to hell, right? So they live their life saying, I hope my good works will outweigh my bad works. And if they don't, and I mean, this is the thing, nobody can understand radical Islam. I'll give you a perfect example of radical Islam. If your bad works outweigh your good works, there's only one way to guarantee your way into heaven. Right? The one way is radical jihad, right? Like if you do this, it's a guarantee. It doesn't matter how you lived your life. If you become a suicide bomber, if you, or if you kill infidels, you automatically get a ticket into heaven. So you see what I'm saying, how it affects the way that they live? Now here's the question for Christian people. When you think about the resurrection, what should change with the way that we live? Like what should be different? Because we believe in a resurrected Savior, and not just that we believe in a resurrected Savior, It's not that he just left and said, good luck, (laughs) in a world that's nuts, right? Good luck. I hope you guys do well. Hope you can, you know, overcome sin. Hope you can overcome addiction. Hope you can overcome all of the problems that are going to happen in the world or are going to be happening in the world. He said, no, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to leave you something. We all know this, right? To a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, that something that he leaves for you is the Holy Spirit, right? Which now resides inside of you, which gives you what? The power to live a different life, a resurrected life, right? That's the difference. The idea as Christian people, we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father, but he didn't leave us alone. He now resides inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit and tells us this. This is what I still can't believe, you know. He says, Jesus, when I leave and I go to the Father and sit at the right hand and I give you the power of the Spirit, you will do more than I ever did on this earth. Now think about that. Do you ever see what Jesus did on the earth and compare it to your life or my life? You're like, 
I don't know. Like, I'm not sure if any of those things can really happen. Do you ever think that? Like, I don't know if people can still be healed. I don't know if people could, I don't know if people who are completely far against God can ever be saved. I don't know if the world can ever change. And I'm sitting here saying, well, he already said it could. Right? He already said that stuff's gonna happen because he said we could do it through him. Now, here's the here's the issue, because we always want to look at the problem. What's the problem that Paul's trying to address in 1 Corinthians 15? Right? Here's the problem he was trying to address. Christian people who believed who were not living a resurrected life. Okay? So that might be some of us fall in that category. I believe in Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, so this is important. Today is not a message about you losing your salvation because you're not living right. You hear me? Right? Like, I don't want you to get this thing as like, oh, we're going to talk about resurrected life, and he's going to talk about what it looks like, and then all of a sudden you're thinking, well, is this, like, if, I, if I'm not living it, I'm not saved. We've already settled that part. You're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, okay? But today is saying there are people who saved through the blood of Jesus Christ who are not living the way they're supposed to be living. You're not living a resurrected life. So how do we address it? What should we do with it? And what should change in our life? The other thing that he's going to do inside of this, which I think is awesome, because my prayer always is that there are people in here today who don't believe. You know, I think that's the beauty of the church. I hope that there are people in here today who have questioned Christianity, you know, and rightfully so. Like, you're investigating, you're thinking, you're processing, and you're not really sure if this whole Jesus Christ thing is real, because you've heard all of the stories and you've heard everybody talk about it. So the other thing that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is he lays out this... Um, documentation or he lays out this historical event or he lays out this idea of how to support. Remember when we talked about in Go Fish, like you need to live it out and lay it out. So you need to talk about the gospel and what the gospel is. And now he's giving you some historical facts, support through scripture. You can say, now you can use this as foundational support of why people should believe. Right? That's the whole idea of 1 Corinthians 15. All right. So the problem that I hope we'll solve today is that if you're here and you're sitting here thinking, you know, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but the power to live, right, the power to change things, the power to live, to change the world is like sputtering out in my life. I hope you'll see it today that through the power of the resurrection, your life can change the world. Like there's nothing inside of this world. I don't care what's happening. All the world seems crazy. There's nothing in this world that can stop the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit living in your life. I don't care what anybody says. It can't be stopped. I don't care what, what we think of what's going to squelch it. It's, not, it's never been stopped, and it won't be stopped. Now, we'd be persecuted more, maybe, but it'll never be stopped. All right, so I hope if that's you today. I hope today if you've been somebody who's questioned for a while and you've said, you know what, I don't know if I really believe. I don't know how much the resurrection really makes sense. I hope the evidence that we give you today will help you consider this because Here's what I want you to hear today. If you're here and you're investigating, here's what I want you to, to understand. We're going to look at truth today. We're not going to look at perception. Many people don't believe because of the perception of what the church has done or perception of what people have done or perception of how things are. One of the craziest things I think in the world when it comes to decisions that you make in your life that you don't make them on truth or facts, that you just make them on perception. Like I think that's, like maybe it's just a personality thing, but I think it's so odd that people make this decision on a perception of what is to come or perception of what they think and not what the true facts are. So if you're gonna make a decision against Christ, which is completely okay, right? Like if you're gonna make a decision like I don't believe, at least make your decision on facts and not on perception. That's really important. So 1 Corinthians is going to be able to get you to do that. So 1 Corinthians uh, 15, we're going to start in verse 1. He's going to give us five truths that are going to support the resurrection. So if you're going to take notes, I'll give you what they are after I read um, the scripture. And again, if you're going back through 1 Corinthians 15, it's an opportunity for you to go back and look at them yourself. So here's the first thing. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. It says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. So that's the first part of this, and we're going to talk about that. But then it makes a switch. So again, if you're reading and you're going to go back and study, this is where I'd put a little line and say, okay, this is the first part of the context of what he's talking about. Then he switches the context completely and how he addresses it when he says, Again, by this gospel you are saved, then if, this is the second part of it, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So two big topics that he's talking about in there that we don't want to miss. The first one is this, and so 
The testimony of the church or the testimony of your life is a representation or evidence that the gospel or the evidence of the resurrection is real, okay? Your life is a representation to somebody who is saying, did Jesus Christ really raise from the dead? Like I heard the story, like you told me the story and you said there's an empty tomb and I came on Easter and on Easter you even did a display of the empty tomb and you sang songs. But is it really real? Like is it real? Because put yourself in a position of somebody who's not grown up in faith. And this is the story you're going to tell them, okay? Hey, come to church on Easter Sunday and we're going to do this thing where there's this guy who died on a cross and then he went to the tomb and the tomb was rolled away and then now it's empty and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Do you believe? I mean, really, we're thinking like, what's wrong with people? Why don't you believe that? Because that's our best presentation we have at times of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come to church and we'll give you a production. And the bigger the production, the better we hope you believe, right? If we do the bigger production, you're surely going to believe that the tomb was empty. I think Paul starts right away and says, you know what the best representation to the empty tomb is? This is a resurrected life. Right? And what does that mean? So what is a resurrected life? And what is he talking about when he says, for each one of you, if there's somebody out there searching, you know the best evidence for an empty tomb is you. I'm going to watch you. I'm going to see you. I'm going to watch the way you behave. I'm going to watch the way you spend your money. I'm going to watch the way you spend your time. I'm going to watch the people that you're involved with. I'm going to look at your value system. I'm going to look at, you see what I'm saying? Like resurrected life means this. Before the resurrection, you had a value system and a way that you lived before the resurrection. Yes? Yeah. Everybody did, right? And most of that value system before the resurrection was revolved around a value system that was either put to you by your parents, which is a lot of us, right? We grew up with a value system, what our parents told us to value. And that's why this, this weird thing always happens when people go away to college. They're like, I get my own value system, and I'm not sure my value system my parents was always right. You know, and so you got your value system, your parents, or you grew up in a, in a school system where you had friend group. That they'd set your value system, right? They put it together for you. The way that you handle your money was either the way your parents did or didn't handle it caused you to say, I'm either going to handle it that way because they did a pretty good job, or there ain't no way in God's green earth I'm handling it like that because that was a bad job, right? Or you look at marriage, right? A lot of people would view marriage and say, you know what? I'm going to view marriage based upon how my parents did. I either want to be like my parents or I don't want to be like my parents, right? Value systems, friend groups, always based upon this. Now, that's the way you had before the resurrection. After the resurrection, the value system shifts towards what does this Bible say, right? It's no longer about the value system of your parents, amen, <laughs> right? Like I think about that, like thank goodness I don't have to think through the value system of my parents and why they did the things that they did good and bad, I can say, now I have rock solid evidence of what the value system of a person who would say that they are a believer are, and it's found right here. Right? There isn't even like any question or gray area, this is my value system, this is what I believe. You wanna talk about the way that you should handle your stuff in this world? And I'm not just talking about money, so it's your cars and your house and your resources and things that you have. I don't have to think about was my parents good man money managers or bad money managers, or did they handle their stuff well or didn't handle their stuff well? I can look in here and it tells me, what should I do with my stuff? Right? Like, I don't have to question it. The scripture tells me, like, this is what you should do. Remember, it's not yours and it's all God's and we're just stewards of. Right? You've read it before, hopefully. <laughs> like, there's this whole idea that the value system shifts. It's no longer yours anymore. And that the stuff that you have is no longer used to just advance what you want, but it's used to advance the kingdom of God. That's why he gave it to you. You're a steward to be able to advance it. You don't have to. Thank the Lord. Look at your parents and be like, were they good role models of marriage or bad role models of marriage? And so based upon that, should I design my marriage after them or not after them? In this book, there is a design for marriage. Nobody's like, that's exciting. That's exciting. <laughs> I'm telling you. You don't have to wonder what, the, what it is or what it should be. There is a design for marriage. This is why we do marriage counseling before we marry people here at Life Church. I'm like, you can do whatever you want, truthfully. Like, you can live however you want inside of your marriage, and you can decide whatever you want inside of your marriage. But I'm going to tell you what this says. 
right? I'm going to tell you the design of marriage based upon, and you just get a choice. Do you want to live with the blessing of God because you're living by his design, or do you want to do it yourself? That's a great thing about free will. You get to do, do it yourself, but you also get a guideline if you want it, right? And you can live by those. But do you see what I'm saying? Resurrected life meant that once you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you are the best witness for the gospel than any words that can come out of a preacher's mouth. That should be a big amen, right? Because preachers are good about getting people fired up and getting them going, and you know you're excited on Sunday morning, and then you go to Monday, you're like, ugh, I you go try to figure this out. Compared to, I'm gonna watch people that I'm living with who are transforming their life, and I'm gonna look at them, and I'm gonna be like, there has to be a Jesus if that guy's living that way. That's what I always hope for. Like when people who are from Adams County find out, that's where I grew up, that I'm a preacher, they're for sure there's a Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I tell people that all the time. Like they're for sure there's a Jesus based upon the way that I used to live my life, right? Now, is that not a representation? I'm not just saying me and whatever level, it's you. Like when people look at you, they're gonna say, there has to be a Jesus because there's change. Now, in some people there's, this much change, and some people there's this much change, but there's always change, right? And so Paul's saying your life is the best representation for people that are searching about Jesus Christ and did he really rise from the dead. Your resurrected life is the best witness possible. Then he goes to the shift when he says, or, or if, he says, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Now, this is where people get confused. Does this mean somebody believed truly and lost their salvation or somebody who had a false sense of belief? Come on, this would be an easy one. We started in the beginning. If you were a true believer, can you lose your salvation? Oh, thank you. Good work. We're, we're getting there, right? So there are people, though, Scripture would tell us, who believed, but when it came to living a resurrected life, nothing ever changed, and so Scripture would tell us that they didn't really believe. Right? Like, that's the whole deal. Like, it's not whether or not they got saved and lost their salvation. It's that they didn't believe in to begin with. Right? They, like many people inside of Scripture, believed intellectually that Jesus was a rabbi who was a prophet, who was a great teacher, who died on a cross and rose again. And I believe all of those things. But as for him being my Lord, it's not. And he is not. And it's not going to change anything in my life. Right? And so now, as much as your life, because... I know you might not want to hear this, so if you're tuned out because everything else was boring, at least hear this. Your life can either be a representation for the gospel of Jesus Christ and a resurrected life, or it can be against it. You know one of the biggest conversations I have with non-believing people right now, you know why they don't believe? Not because of Jesus. Because of me and you. That's a bummer, right? But you know what they're saying? Like, why would I believe if that's what I'm believing in? I'm not pointing at you, Trent. I'm just like pointing out there. <laughs> you know, I kind of always fear like I point out there like I'm not really pointing at Trent. The idea, all of us, right, that there are people, and I've listened to them, and I honestly don't know how to dispute it. When they say, I went to a church, and I got to know that person, and he was the worst person I ever met. Yeehaw for the resurrection, right? Like, wow, great witness. Now we're the meanest, backstabbingest, backbiting people, judgmental, right? Have you ever heard that? Right, you talk to people who are not saved. How many of them are saying, yeah, I went to the church. You know what the church did? They were like, you, not you either, Michaela, but you people, right? Like, you are so bad, and you don't live up to it, and you don't do, and that person is so bad, and you should change. Because You know, they're like... You guys are the most judgmental people in the world. And is, do you really have the right? Because I watched you live. Yeah, the, it's a funny thing is I remembered this story in preparation for today. So when I first got saved in the Methodist church that I was in, there was a group of guys doing promise keepers. Is anybody old enough to remember promise keepers? Yeah, so they were doing promise keepers. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And we went down to promise keepers. But I was also a volunteer fireman. And here's what I was trying to wrestle with. So I went down and I did promise keepers in the basement of the church and fired up for Jesus. And we're going to be men who keep our promises and we're going to do, we're going to change the world and gatherings of people. And then I went to the, to the fire station 
And the guys would sit around in circles talking about the strip clubs that they went to, and they wanted to know if I wanted to go. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I was like the same way. Like, how does that fit together? We're men who are going to keep our promises, except when our wives don't know. <laughs> you hear me? Like, and I'm sitting here thinking, is this really how it works? Is this really the way that a resurrected life is supposed to be? That around people, you are one way, right? You heard this story before. In the church, when you're around your certain group of people, you're one person, but when you're outside, you're somebody completely different. If you were somebody trying to figure out belief, how confusing is that? And people always say all the time, like, listen, and that's why I always tell people, like, be careful what comes out of your mouth or be careful what goes on your timeline of social media. You hear me? <laughs> because in the midst of that, whether you like it or not, because people say, I don't really care that people are watching. Okay, then don't care, but people are. They want to know, who are you really? Right? Who are you really? And again, I would say one of the things I love about Life Church and love about coming to Life Church is most of the people that I'm involved with is what you see is what you get. And I love that. I love that. And I love it because then people can make a decision on Jesus, not based upon the hypocrisy of people, but on the facts of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and him ascending and sitting at the right hand of the Father God, and that I'm not going to get in the way. You know, it's not going to be the hypocrisy of all of those things. So he starts right away saying, listen, you have got to be able to understand part of the testimony of a resurrected life is you. Part of the testimony against a resurrected life is you. Which one are you going to choose in the way that you live? All right? Then he goes on, says this in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to, so again, if you're in your Bible, underline this, because this is really important, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So both instances in there would say a resurrected life not only is because of the testimony of our own life, there was also a testimony historically in the scriptures that's written down for us, right? Somebody talked about it before. This is what Paul's trying to build this case for. Not only can I look at your life and say, because of the way that you live, I could surely believe that there's going to be a Jesus. I can also go back and confirm it with the history, like, I can go back and say, historically, Scripture said this certain thing was going to happen. And guess what? It happened, right? Like, it really happened. And so he's confirming it with saying one of the things that you can see is the testimony of Scripture, building the case for all this. Now, I can't go through all of them, but you would know throughout all of the Old Testament, there was prophecy by prophets that prophesied that Jesus Christ would come, Right? So we all know that. That's all in the Old Testament. Old Testament prophets would say, this is what's coming. They would prophesy. Those prophecies were fulfilled in the coming of Christ, in the suffering of Christ, in the death of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, and with Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. It came together. You see the case he's starting to build? It wasn't just like all of a sudden they came up with this new theory. Oh, Jesus Christ, rabbi, is going to come to the earth, and wow, he's going to suffer and die and, and go into a tomb and raise from the dead. This was all planned, predicted before all of this. Now, this is where Isaiah 53 is. It comes in, and, and I want you to hear this. I'm going to read all the way through it. I think it's light enough here because I brought my camo Bible in representative hunting season, you know, so I'm going to read out of it. And I kind of forgot until I got up here that it's small print. Um, so we'll see how it goes. But Isaiah 53, it's called, called in a lot of realms the forbidden chapter, okay? And here's why. So when I was working at Zerker Tire, my uncle, Bob, we had a truck driver that uh, would deliver tires to us because I lurked in the warehouse and we used to unload tires all the time. And he was Jewish, right? So my uncle was a huge evangelist, right, trying to get this guy who was a Jewish guy to believe. And so you'd ask him, do you believe in Jesus? No, we don't believe in Jesus why don't you believe in Jesus? And we go through all these things. And then we'd always come back to this idea. Do you believe in the Old Testament? Do you believe in the prophecy of the Old Testament? Yeah, we believe in the prophecy of the Old Testament. Then how do you not believe in Jesus? And you know where you'd always go back to? Isaiah 53. Right? Because Isaiah 53 is the one. So we ask him, what do you do with Isaiah 53? You know what his answer was? 
In the synagogue today, Isaiah 53 is no longer read. It's omitted. The forbidden chapter. Why? Because here's what people want to do. When they have facts that they can't figure out what to do with, they just get rid of them. Sound familiar? Sound familiar on how people want to look at life and how they want to read their Bible? Like, there's true facts in here of what it says. you got to figure out how to deal with them. And, and what, the, what the Jewish people have said is, we're going to stop reading them. Not that they're going to take it out of the Bible, but we're no longer going to put it in there. And you're going to know why, right? Because if you believe that Scripture is true and you read Isaiah 53 and you are a Jewish person, how can you not believe in the resurrection? Right, that's what it comes down to. Unless you just flat out say, you know, I don't believe that the Bible's true, which is what's so odd is they believe all of it's true except for the parts that they don't support their way of life. Again, sound familiar on what people want to do with Scripture? So let's see how this goes. Small print, Isaiah 53, says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before them like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that, should, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a, a, a man suffering uh, and familiar with pain, like one from the people, uh, like one whom the people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him lo in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and before our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment, brought us the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and his wounds were healed. We are like sheep and we have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shears is silent, so, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who, uh, yet who of his genera generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. He will, and the, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and he be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion of, a portion of the great, uh, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, he, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. <laughs> you're a Jew, and you're reading this, and you're saying, oh, that doesn't really fit the life of Jesus. <laughs> Did you see how it went? Did you follow all the way through? Here was somebody who wasn't accepted from the beginning because he wasn't this huge king. He was somebody that at the end of the day who had to suffer even though he wasn't. He was buried in a tomb, right, of a rich man, right? All of that stuff has come true. And you're sitting here as a Jew be like, you know, I can't really reconcile all of that, so I'm just going to do away with it. Here's what Paul's trying to tell us, right, in Isaiah 53 and through the scriptures. You have to understand, this was all foretold. So not only is it your life, there's scriptures to support that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We need to believe, and it's supported by the scripture. The next one, he goes on and says in verse 5, he says, And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Testimony of eyewitnesses. You want to know if the resurrection is true? Here's what's so cool about what Jesus did. He didn't just, hey, there was an empty tomb, and go to the right hand of the Father and say, we're well, already told you what's coming, the Holy Spirit, and it's going to happen in Acts, and it's going to come at a certain time. He said, you know what, I'm going to come back and I'm going to prove to you that I have the power over death. And I'm going to show up. And I'm going to show up first to Peter, who needs some help. 
Put yourself in Peter's position. I'll never deny you. And then a little girl scared him to death and he denied Jesus. Like, how would you feel? You know what I mean? Big old Peter became a chicken, you know? And, and so he appears to Peter. Then he goes back to the 12, appears to the 12. Interesting enough that he, that he appears then to 500 people. And these weren't people randomly in the grocery store. Right? Like he didn't be like, oh, there's a lot of people at Walmart today. I think I'm going to show up in a parking lot and let everybody know that it's me. No, he showed up to 500 of his followers. Why is that so important? Because we know that the spread of the gospel happens through people, right? And so you needed to see what just happened because you're getting ready to go tell everybody this is the message. <laughs> I saw him on a cross. Followers would have. I saw him in a tomb, followers would have. I saw the empty tomb, followers would have. Now, I saw him alive. It changes everything, right? Jesus Christ alive changes everything. To his followers and, here's the cool thing, to his skeptics. James, did you see that at the end? It said I you know, showed myself to James, who was a skeptic. Like, I don't know, Jesus was really the guy. Like, you know, he, was, he, he grew up in Jesus' family, so he's like, can Jesus really be the man? I mean, he's a carpenter. I watched him grow up. He's not that cool. You know, the same thing you would have think of your own brothers and sisters. Right? Like, they're not that great, you know. So he didn't believe. So Jesus came back to the skeptics and said, I want to prove to you. Although you had skepticism, let me show you that this is real. And so if you were building a case and you wanted to support what, and you wanted other people to believe, what better to believe than somebody that saw it for their own eyes? Right? Like, if you're trying to tell somebody, like, you should believe in something, you, the, the easy way for that to happen is to say, like, this person right here saw him alive. So if you had any question of whether or not you could defeat death, he saw him. And then the message went from 500 to 1,000 to 2,000 to where we are today because it started with eyewitness people who said, I saw him alive and he defeated death and you need to believe. And you know why you can believe? You can believe because it said it in the scripture and you can believe because you knew me before this and now you know me now and this all fits together because it's all starting to come together. You see what I'm saying? Right? It's all starting to build upon each other. It's my life, power of the scripture. And I saw it, right? And it's starting to, to change the way people live. So it's a testimony of eyewitnesses. Then he goes on and talks in verse eight when he says, and, uh, and last of all, appeared to me also as to the, to the one abnormally born. Now, remember that, because, or underline that, because we're going to come back and talk about what he was saying when he uh, was discussing abnormally born. But verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and did not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace... Uh, to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than any of them, yet uh, not I, but through the grace of God. So when he talks about I abnormally born, have you ever heard of somebody that would talk about, well, what about the people who grew up in a certain way? How will they ever know the gospel? Like if they grew up in a certain household and nobody ever told them? Yeah, you heard that? That's what he was talking about. Paul, abnormally born, grew up in a very religious Jewish place that discounted the gospel of Jesus Christ. The abandonment of Isaiah 53 was where he lived, right? And here's what's so cool about the power of the gospel. Even your family unit can't stop Jesus showing up in your life. So you have somebody right now that you're praying for and you're like, I don't know if they could ever be reached. They can be reached. Jesus Christ will show up in the lives of people. He will do his part because that's what he did with Paul, right? Paul, abnormally born in a place where he would have never known, but then he shows up on the road to Damascus. Who would have thought he's going to show up while he's ready to go kill people? But he shows up in the midst of all that, says Jesus showed up in his life, and it changed things, right? And this is what's so important. This is what he talks about, that there were big, major changes in uh, the life of Paul. The first one was when Jesus showed up to, to him in the beginning, he started to recognize sin. Now, hear me when I say, when he said to recognize sin, if you would have known Paul, and how religious he was, would you have looked at him from the outside and said he was a sinner? Think about, like if you think about Jewish people and how they lived and how they kept the law, like compared to the common man, would you think that, that, that Paul would have been revered as a sinner? No, you know why he was saying he was a sinner? Because he was religious before relationship. Don't miss it. Being religious is a sin, that's what he's trying to say. Trying to earn, this is religion, trying to earn the favor of God 
through trying to be religious is not the way to earn the favor of God, right? And in his mind, he was trying to earn the favor of God through being religious. So he recognized his sin and started to say, outwardly, I might look like I have a relationship, but inwardly, I am bankrupt. You see where this is tracking? How many people are outwardly, I'm going to church, I'm doing all the things, but nothing's changing inside of me? Outwardly religious, inwardly bankrupt, right? And this is, the, this is the world that a lot of people are living in. But he said, now I've become inwardly full. And outwardly, you're going to start to see then the changes uh, in my life. And so the other one was his change of character. Remember how we talked about when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you're going to change. He went from being a persecutor of the church to the biggest defender of the church, even if it meant he got beat, the t- got the tar beat out of him. It's a pretty big change in character, right? Like you would go from a place where you were trying to destroy it to the point where now you're defending it and there's going to be people beating you up for it. And the other thing that was changed inside of him significantly is where he spent his energy and his time, right? Same thing for us. Recognize your sin, character changes, and when your character changes, so does how you spend your time and energy. His time and energy went to persecuting the church and holding up the the religious part of the church to I got to get out and save people. I'm going to go from city to city, and I'm going to preach the message, and I want to see people be saved uh, inside of that, and that things are going to change. So the band's going to come back up. I'm going to give you the last part in verse 11 and give you some challenges uh, that we can go out with. Here's verse 11. Verse 11 says, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Okay, so the other thing that he's trying to bring together inside of this, if you look at all of it and you say your life is a representation of the resurrection, if you look at scripture supports all of these things, if you look at eyewitnesses, if you look at Paul, we're bringing all of these things together. But you know what else is, is, um, supports all of this? Somebody today, here's, here's what's so cool. I'm, you know, some of my pastoral friends in other parts of the country we are preaching the same message, and we are far away from each other. The message is the same, right? It's not the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him being resurrected is the same in India as it is in Indiana, right? The message of the gospel is the same in Guatemala as it is in, in Huntington, Indiana, right? Like, these places, the message is the same. And so it's not like we all have a different twist on a resurrection or a different twist on a resurrected life. We don't have those things, right? The message is common and is the same. So now, here's what we talked about in the beginning, problems that Paul was trying to address. People would call themselves Christians but weren't living a resurrected life, right? So the question to all of us is, where do you fall in that? What do you believe? Isn't that what it comes down to, right? Like, when we're talking about this, Paul was asking them, do you believe? Do you believe in the power of the resurrection? Do you believe that you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Do you believe that Jesus Christ gave you something for you to have the ability to do more than Jesus could have ever done on this earth? If you believe that, then your life is different than what it was, period. If you don't, because it says there are going to be people that say that they believe, but they really don't. Like, I believe in a resurrection, and I believe in Jesus, and I can't, can't even like to come to church. The worship team's pretty cool. You know, all of those things, but power for living, I'm going to live my own way, do my own thing. You know, I don't, I don't need help from anybody else. I don't need it. You know, I don't need any of these other things. Where do you land inside of that? Because I don't want you to forget this. Church is a great place to come and to gather and to talk about and to preach the message and to worship God and come close in his presence. But remember, your life, as much as it is a representation of the gospel, as much as it is as a representation against the gospel, if you choose to not live a resurrected life, It's a pretty big responsibility. And Paul's just saying, what do you believe? (laughs) Because if you believe this, believe me, I've already given you the power to change. I've already given you the power to overcome. 
And all of us, and this is the great thing, all of us are on a journey of change until Jesus Christ comes back or until I die. Isn't that cool? Right? It doesn't get all fixed today. <laughs> I wish it would get all fixed today, but it doesn't get all fixed today. It's a journey of transformation to the time where we meet Jesus Christ, either through the passing of this earth or him coming back. For us, as a church, we need to ask ourselves the same question. Do you believe in the power of the resurrection? And if you do, how has it changed your life? Will you stand so I can pray for you? So Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, understanding that um, too many times with our mouths we can say we believe in the resurrection, but in our lives there is no change. So Lord, I pray today that for all of us who are struggling with living a resurrected life, that you'll give us the power to overcome, the power to be a witness into this world, that we are the best witness that any person will ever see to the resurrected Jesus. Lord, I pray today for people who are in here or who are watching online that are still skeptical. I hope today you walked away with, if you still have skepticism, it's skepticism about facts and not perceptions of what people say. If you choose to believe today, the angels will celebrate along with Life Church that you've come to this place where now because of the facts that you will believe, we celebrate with you today. For those of you who are still skeptics, we will still come alongside of you, pray with you, be with you, answer all the questions we can and to the best of our ability, be a witness of what a resurrected life looks like. And most of all, Lord, we'll trust you for the change that needs to happen. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.
So I don't think you could have ended with any perfect or a song, right? But to sit here and think through this idea that the best representation of the love of Jesus Christ is his amazing grace that saved all of us wretches, right? That through his grace, we've all been saved. And through the way that we live our lives, we are going to, people are going to see Jesus in us in the way that we live. So again, thanks for joining us here uh, today on our main campus. And thanks for everybody for joining us online. And we'll see you next week as we continue on with 1 Corinthians.